Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're continuing on Sunday mornings through the book of Acts. And you'll see on the graphic it says part two. Part one was we ended uh, last year before Christmas. And that took us up through Acts chapter 1 through 12, which is really kind of the first half of the book of Acts. The main emphasis on the first 12 chapters is primarily through the ministry of Peter the Apostle as the gospel is going forth uh, among uh, our Jewish, uh, the Jews there and the brethren in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And from chapter 13 forward, the emphasis is on uh, through the Apostle Paul and the ministry uh, to non-Jews, Gentiles. And so we split it up and we're in chapter 19 and we're continuing in chapter 19. We've kind of for the last several weeks, tap the brakes a little bit as chapter 19 is, there's just a lot here and we're not, we're under no rush on Sunday mornings and want to take time to uh, understand the word of the Lord and so we're looking at chapter 19 and in chapter 19 this focus is the Apostle Paul's ministry as he has moved into the city of Ephesus. We'll talk a little bit about that a little later. But in Ephesus, uh, what we find in this chapter 19 is several elements relating to a spiritual awakening, a revival that took place, because it's pretty dramatic what happens here in this city, and you'll understand the strategy of the Holy Spirit in what was being done here in Ephesus a little later. But with this kind of backdrop of revival or spiritual awakening, I'll kind of use those interchangeably Revival oftentimes is a term we use among believers who need reviving. You can't be revived unless you've been vived. That's, that's maybe not act, but you get the idea. And so spiritual awakening oftentimes is a term that is used for both, but that is where, where people who do not know Christ uh, come to saving faith in Christ. But I'm kind of using those interchangeably because we see uh, both of those at work in chapter 19. Uh, in the first uh, past two weeks, we uh, spent a little more time just talking specifically about revival. We spent uh, the first Sunday talking about an example of revival in uh, Wales, uh, there in Great Britain, the turn of the uh, 20th century the, of Evan Roberts and G. Campbell Morgan. And, and again, there's history is full of of these awakenings. We've talked, we know about the Great Awakening. There was a first Great Awakening in the 18th century, and, and there was a second Great Awakening in the 19th century, and there's been multiple seasons of revival that God has had uh, in His church. There's also been some false revivals. There's been uh, excesses and things like that, but we should never allow the false to hinder us from the true, correct? So we want to make sure that we're always looking and uh, looking at Scripture and making sure that we're, at, we're examining line upon line and precept upon precept and judging it, not by the ecstatic uh, manifestations, but always looking and say, what does Scripture say? How does Scripture, uh, how does this judge against the Word of God? And that's always our standard, not 
through, uh, you know, even miracles and manifestations as, as maybe as those might be uh, uh, true and biblical. But we want to, again, what does the Word of God, how does the Word of God help us stay in the lane of balance? There's a definition that we, we and again, I'm not going to belabor this, the introduction, but I just, as refreshing our minds, uh, one introduction or one uh, definition of revival uh, that I u- I'm using again this week is from Richard Owen Roberts. I know years ago he was here, I believe, and he's probably written some of the greatest uh, accounts and, and studies on the history of revival and what biblical revival is, Richard Owen Roberts. Uh, and, the def- and he said that a revival is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. An extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Kind of a broad definition, but it's a, it's a unique season and time of God's working uh, either in the church or in a particular outreach among unbelievers. And what we are looking at in the book of Acts as we continue to every Sunday uh, unfold uh, how the Holy Spirit is working in the book of Acts, really flows out of chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus, uh, after his resurrection and he was uh, with the disciples, he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told them when he was telling them to go and wait in Jerusalem uh, where they will be empowered, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They already had the Holy Spirit, but this was an empowering of the Spirit that we would see in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And why do you need this power? Why do we need this power? Is because you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So where we're at in this Looking at the book of Acts in chapter 19 is we're seeing the fulfillment of that last part where the gospel is going to the end of the earth. It's going uh, beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the region around uh, uh, that area in the, in the uh, place of Jesus' uh, life and ministry and Paul. Now it's being extended into the world, we might say it. And so we talk about the book of Acts, maybe as you have your Bible, it might say the Acts of the Apostles, but the book of Acts is really the acts or the actions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the prominent uh, one who's playing the prominent role using his followers, using his disciples, the the apostles, using uh, even us. Acts chapter ends in chapter 28, but we are living in Acts chapter 29 because Uh, The gospel is still advancing. The gospel is still moving forward. The work of Christ is still advancing, and we are a part of that. So Acts 29, which is not in your Bibles, but we are living Acts 29 if we want to look at it that way. We are seeing and still operating as the commissioned people of God uh, by Christ. And so where we're at in Acts chapter 19 is the Apostle Paul and his ministry in the city of Ephesus. And here, uh, the last few weeks, we looked at, uh, we've been looking at five elements of this great awakening, this spiritual awakening that is happening here in Ephesus. Last week, we looked at the first one, and that was a manifestation of God's presence in verses 1 through 9, where there was this empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon these followers of John the Baptist, who not only heard about 
uh, John the Baptist and the ministry of John and the baptism of repentance. And so the Apostle Paul uh, was used by God to kind of update them and bring them up to speed with, with uh, what God was doing since Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit had this uh, dramatic outpouring among these followers here. And it's easy to get sidetracked in what happened there. Of course, you know, it says that they began to speak in tongues and prophesying, and that's very similar to what, I mean, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, right? And it happened again in Acts chapter 8. It happened again in Acts chapter 10. And so this connection with this uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God's church, they are now kind of brought in on that. But, but let's not, while we may not know exactly what, what those tongues and prophesying was, if we think it's a continuation of what God did in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it's my preference or my understanding is it's probably uh, the ability to speak languages because that's what happened there in Acts chapter 2. But, but you know, Christians can argue about all that, but it, it misses the point. The bigger point is really the lasting fruit, not the sign gifts. We get focused on that, but the lasting fruit is what came about, and what came about from that is that the Word of God began to spread widely through this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and people were hearing the Word of God, and they were coming to faith in Christ. That's the lasting fruit. That's the lasting if we could call it, that's the lasting and most important sign of a genuine work of the Holy Spirit is that the Word of God is going forth and lives and hearts are being changed. So we look at the manifestation of God's presence last week and this morning we want to look at two more and we're going to look at the demonstration of God's power and also the magnification of the name of Jesus. These are, again, five uh, elements, five marks, if you want to call it that way, when there is revival or spiritual awakening. I wouldn't say it's the only thing and it's limited to, the, to uh, these five areas, but in chapter 19, you see these five illustrated here in this chapter. And so, as I said, we're just kind of tapping the brakes a little bit and as we go through Scripture and we want to look at a little more detail in chapter 19. So uh, look with me in verses 11 through 17. We're going we're gonna to read that in just a minute. But we want to see this second mark or evidence of spiritual awakening that takes place in Ephesus. And we see the second mark is a demonstration of God's power, a demonstration of God's power. The Bible clearly affirms and teaches the existence of Satan, demons, evil. This is not going to be that type of study per se, but the Bible teaches that very consistently. Uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's taught the existence of Satan, the devil, uh, demons, evil workers, and those that operate under evil control of, of Satan. Even in the teaching and the life of Jesus, it's clearly taught. Think with me that in three of the Gospels, in, as Jesus began his ministry, the very place that he began his ministry after uh, his baptism by John the baptizer, his cousin, that the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, led him, drove him into the wilderness where he would be tempted by Satan. 
And this isn't just some isolated case, but it was an establishment of the power and authority of Christ where Jesus would have this one-on-one encounter with Satan, tempted over 40 days and 40 nights. Someone said, Jesus being, as the Bible teaches, being the first Adam, where the first Adam failed, Jesus being the second Adam prevailed. And Jesus was establishing his authority and his dominion and power right at the beginning of his ministry by this encounter with Satan. And I only bring that up to, again, we're, we're saying that the Bible teaches consistently the reality of these, of these things. Uh, a helpful quote and a helpful study uh, is provided by C.S. Lewis. Those of you familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, probably the most popular, but certainly wrote other things. I usually paraphrase this quote, but I thought it would be helpful to have the entire quote here. And C.S. Lewis gives us a helpful reminder when we begin to discuss or talk about these things. And uh, hopefully it's not too small. You can read along with me. C.S. Lewis counsels us this way. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors as we talk about the subject of Satan, the devil, demons, uh, spiritual warfare. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, meaning humans, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. That's one extreme. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive or even obsessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's the other extreme. Now, here's what he says about uh, Satan and the demons. He says, "They, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors, by both extremes, and hail a materialist, remember he's writing many years back, or the atheist, uh, they, they salute or hail the materialist or atheist or the magician or somebody who's either extreme. It doesn't matter with the same delight. In essence, he's saying that if you go to one extreme and say, well, I don't really believe all that. I don't think that's just kind of a myth. Or, as some people, that we, we see their books and stuff, that, that seems to be all they talk about. That seems to be the, all they obsess with, and you wonder who's really in control. Is Satan or is God sovereign? Uh, I remember many years ago uh, in, um, in the mall, I don't remember where I was living, and I'm sure I've seen it in other places, and it's one of these where they sell posters and paintings in there. And I remember they had this uh, very prominent uh, poster painting uh, there, and it was kind of this uh, uh, planetary picture, and it pictured what appeared to be some type of angelic being playing chess with some type of demonic being. Anybody ever seen kind of, and they're like playing, and earth, I think, is kind of the platform, and it, it's kind of presenting as though uh, the God of Scripture, or the God that, of, 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 who created the earth, is kind of this uh, good entity, and Satan is kind of this equal but equally powerful entity. That is not a biblical picture at all. And... Uh, the Bible teaches consistently and clearly that it is God who is in control. We don't, uh, again, this is not the point of going in that, but let's just, with that established, in Acts chapter 19, we see that God did some amazing work in the city of Ephesus. Now, I set all that as a backdrop because you, we need to understand what the city of Ephesus, why that is so significant. 
And uh, Ephesus was a main center in the Greco-Roman world, was the main center for occult practices for Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is what we today refer to as modern Turkey, uh, and it was the center, the epicenter of occultism and idolatry, but occultism and sorcery, uh, when we talk about magic, it wasn't like magic, like pulling a rabbit out of your hat. That wasn't the terminology. It was magic, meaning using incantations and spells, and, and we might call it demonism, or we might even call it witchcraft. But the point is, is that the city of Ephesus was a main hub for this type of occultism and, and magic or dark practices. Uh, one writer said this, and I thought this was interesting, and this is helpful to understand what, what is going to happen and what's going on in Ephesus and why the Holy Spirit works so mightily in this particular city and how strategically Ephesus was used in the advancement of the gospel. But here we are at the very beginning. One writer says this that is uh, interesting. He said, "...of all ancient Greek and Roman cities..." Ephesus, the third largest city, Chicago, I think, is the third largest city in the United States. So Ephesus would have been a quite, was a significant size city, economic power, and all those. But also, it had a reputation in the Greco or Roman Empire that it was the most hospitable to witch, or not witches, magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. So when we come to Acts chapter 19, with this as a backdrop, and we see what takes place here, we see how this spiritual awakening or revival that took place in Ephesus, a city that is saturated, obsessed, identified with the occult, was a demonstration of the power of God. God was in no way intimidated by all of this that Ephesus had this reputation for Interesting, side note, don't have a slide or anything on it. Sometime, uh, look at, uh, Revel you know, in Revelations chat, Revelation 2 and 3, you have the seven churches of Revelation. You know the first church that is mentioned in Revelation 2 is the city of Ephesus. And when you uh, study history, you find that all the other churches, Sardis, uh, Laodicea, all those other churches, the other six church, churches, were all uh, started or planted out of the church of Ephesus. So Ephesus became not only a center of the gospel, but it became also a place in which missions and church planting throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey, that the gospel went be above and beyond out of Ephesus. So not only is it a stronghold for the occult and Satanism, but God has other plans. He's not turning it over uh, or leaving it in Satan's hands. He has a purpose and plan for what he does in Ephesus. And so I think that's helpful as we look as a backdrop at how Ephesus was a hub for all of this occult, but also that God saw it as a place, a hub, in which the gospel would go forth from planting and establishing a mighty church. Now, let's look at Acts 19 and continue in verse 8, and notice with me the confusion that's here. The Bible reads, as we look at this passage, that Paul and he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke, spoke boldly, 
reasoning and persuading them, that is, Jews that are living in this Gentile area of Ephesus, uh, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul, he, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Notice just here that how Satan is already trying to stir up uh, opposition, dissension, rebellion, confusion, keeping people from hearing and disrupting the advancement of the word of God. He is not interested in the truth. You remember what Jesus said in John 8, and said how the devil is a murderer and a, a liar from the beginning? One translation, you know, we know it, but how that uh, he only speaks lies. Uh, one translation says, that lying is his native language, that he is the, he is the uh, propagator of untruth. So obviously he is not going to be interested in the truth of the gospel gaining a foothold into this territory that has been so profitable for the advancement of his purposes and causes. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that in talking about how Satan wants to keep people from the truth and disrupt the Word of God, Paul says that in their case, the God of this world, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel, the kingdom of God, is advancing. And that's an important thing. I, I don't want to take time to elaborate on it. But you remember, if you look back in Acts chapter 1, in verse 3, that what did Jesus teach his followers, his disciples, between his resurrection and his ascension? The Bible says in Acts 1-3 that he was teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. So if that was what he was spending time teaching the apostles, the disciples, followers, that he was taking time between, before he ascended into heaven, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It is the reign of God. It is the authority of God. And that's an important concept when we see what takes place here. And so Satan is trying to demonstrate his power here in Ephesus. He's trying to maintain this foothold. But notice, according to verse 10, how does that work out? Well, uh, there were some places that the Apostle Paul could only stay a short time, and then he had to leave. But here he was able to stay two years teaching the Word of God, and it says that the residents of Asia, now we think of Asia, we're thinking of Thailand, Vietnam, and you know, down in that uh, 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 Cambodia, we're thinking about that area. But in Bible terms, they refer to Asia Minor as, as I said earlier, the modern-day Turkey. That's their reference. So, so in other words, that all the residents heard what? They heard the Word of God. So already at the beginning, Satan and his demons and those who are abiding by his pushback of truth, how's that? What are they doing? They're pushing back. They're resisting. They're not interested in the gospel, but it's already not working out. Already they're seeing signs that, 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 that things are going to change because the Word of God 
is advancing forward. And the kingdom of God is advancing forward. That's an important thing to keep in mind here. But there's a confrontation in verses 13 through 16. And this is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. And I wouldn't say it's funny, but it it does put a smile on your face with what happens here. But notice this confrontation. And that's what's happening here, is the kingdom of God is confronting the kingdom's of darkness here in Ephesus. Notice in verse 13, then some of the itinerant or traveling Jewish exorcists, and we'll talk about that in a minute, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, quote, I adjure you by by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva we're doing this. So what are they doing? They see this demonstration of spiritual power operating through the Apostle Paul. These itinerant Jewish exorcists, a uh, couple of things we want to say about them, is if they were truly uh, uh, Jewish in their ethnicity, but if they were Jewish, they certainly wouldn't be practicing in the dark arts because the Bible clearly talks about uh, avoiding the occult and witchcraft and talk and necromancy, talking to the dead. So they were Jewish in their ethnicity, and uh, we see that there were seven sons of this Jewish high priest named Sceva. Seven sons of Sceva. Sounds like a rock band, doesn't it? I think I had one of their albums in the 70s, The Seven Sons of Sceva, live at uh, uh, wherever. Anyway, so uh, now this title, it says that he's a high priest, but he's not a, he's not a high priest in the sense of someone who is, who is a Jewish high priest in their role of the temple. This is a self-given title, okay, he, because it would enhance his... Uh, What really is interesting is how this culture that was obsessed and immersed in demonism and the occult, they had great respect for Judaism. And so somebody that would kind of come along and add the Jewishness to their their occultism kind of enhanced their their portfolio. And they might would even use the names of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as part of their demonic incantations. So when it says he's a high priest, that's kind of just a title he's given himself. They're charlatans. They're they're, they're prospering and doing. They probably were, were really popular and, and well sought out. And they thought, hey, you know, we could really add this to our portfolio. Now, don't get me wrong. They're not just tricksters, but they are indeed immersed in these dark occult practices. And they saw this power operating by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul and kind of like back in Acts chapter 8, remember Simon the sorcerer? He saw the power of the Holy Spirit. And he went to Peter and said, how much do you want for that? I'll give you a nice price for that power if you show me how to do it. And clearly Peter rebuked him for that type of thing. It wasn't something that you know he could just add. And so they sought to employ by adding Jesus to their repertoire to expel these demons. Uh, They were attempting to call... Now, this is kind of... uh, Hang with me just one second. This is interesting. These these individuals, these seven sons of Sceva, okay, they're operating in these occult 
practices of, of, uh, of demon, demons and evil spirits, perhaps even being used to want to uh, show their authority and power over other demons. You see what's going on here? And so they pro- possibly heard this Jesus, and they thought, hey, this will give us one up at the demon clubhouse, and we'll be able to one up these other demons and have more power than these lesser demons. You see demons rebuking and casting out each other. Do you see that confusion going on there, all right? We know that unbelievers and even people that uh, certainly were not followers of Christ can rebuke and cast out demons because if you remember in Matthew 7, when Jesus said, there will be those that come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, one of the things they add in their defense before Jesus is they said, did we not cast out demons in your name? But remember what Jesus said? I never knew you. You see, uh, the devil and his ilk have never been known for having great strategy, okay, all right? The Bible even says in one place, had they known what was the truth behind, and I'm paraphrasing, had they truly known uh, what was behind the crucifixion of Christ, they would have never crucified Jesus, all right? So, So keep that in mind of what they're doing here. But verse 15 says that the evil spirit, notice the language here, the evil spirit is in this man possessed by this demon, The evil spirit answered them. They're trying to use the name of Jesus. And the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Let me paraphrase it this way. Uh, I know I can't beat Jesus, I know I can't one-up Paul because he's got the same power of Jesus, but you guys have no power to do anything to us. And notice what happened. Now, this is where I said I can't read this without a smile on my face. And the man, verse 16, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, and they... The seven sons of Sceva fled out of the house naked. Naked. I started to say it the way we used to say it, naked in the south. They fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, who do you think won that little confrontation? Here's a tip. If when the fight started, you were wearing pants that when it ended, you are not wearing pants, you lost that fight. That's a little tip. You see what's happening here? And it's no coincidence of why this confrontation, because as we go on, we're going to see that this wasn't just some isolated confrontation, but that lives we're starting to be transformed by the gospel so much as we'll see next week possibly or in a couple weeks when we get to that place is that the culture, the city that was tied into this demonism, this occultism to where even the finances and the economy that made money off of all the, the, the stuff 
Kind of like, you know, a Spencer's gift shop in the mall. We were going, where were we? We were at the mall, walked by there, and I said, that's where every teenager buys their first, you know, or guys, you know, maybe, maybe I'm sure, you know, buys their first love gift to their sweetheart at 14 or 15, you know. Um, nobody ever bought a girlfriend a gift in Spencer's, guys? Come on. All right? The mood ring or whatever, you know, whatever was the deal back in 1943 or whatever. All right? So, so what is happening here? God is, is moving forward through the gospel, the kingdom of God against the kingdoms of darkness. And as, as people said this in a negative way in the NIV and, and later in the, the verse, that the, these people, this Paul and his followers, are causing a great disturbance. That is a great definition of what spiritual awakening and revival should do. It should cause a great disturbance with the kingdoms of darkness. Look at verse 18. It says that many of those who were now believers, as a result of what they witnessed there, seeing this demonstration of power, they came confessing and divulging their practices. The message paraphrase, I don't use it a lot. Sometimes it's kind of fun to compare, but I, I like the way it says in verse 18. Same verse, but through a little looser paraphrase. Many of those who thus believed came out of the closet <laughs> and made a clean break with their secret sorceries. I like that. Because what did they see? They saw a demonstration of the power of God over the powers of this darkness that they thought had so much control. Now, I don't see uh, Pamela here today. Is Pamela here? I don't see her. Pamela, who's a part of our church, she grew up and lived in Uganda. And uh, she has stories of growing up where these supernatural acts were just regular, common daily life. See, in our Western world, where we're much more logical and methodical and scientific, you know, it, it kind of makes us nervous talking about these things. But there are cultures, Latin America and different parts of the world, in which these type of dark occultic practices, even the syncretism, you know what I mean by syncretism, where it's a mixture of, of Christianity and it's a mixture of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it clearly is, is, a, is a demonism or occultism, and I know there's various terms for that. And so people grow up in that kind of environment, but the bottom line, the power, or I should say the, the, the energizer behind that is Satan and the demons. But, but what Jesus is establishing here, there's a scripture, I believe, over in uh, Luke 14, when, uh, and, and I, I don't have the exact reference, when you look it up. You remember the time when the Pharisees were accusing Jesus that he himself was demon-possessed? That's why he was casting out demons. Do you remember kind of roughly that? And he said, how can, he said, that doesn't make sense. Why would Beelzebub, why would Satan destroy his own kingdom? But this is the phrase he uses there, and I believe it's Luke 14, 11 down, somewhere in there. He says, when you see the Son of Man casting out demons, you will know 
that the kingdom, kingdom of God has arrived. That's a great verse. What is he saying? Here's my message translation. When you see the Son of Man casting out demons, you'll know a new sheriff is in town. Why? Because Jesus is a superior I wouldn't even say superior power as if there's a uh, competitive power. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. We've been talking about heaven on Wednesday nights. We've learned that this new heaven and new earth, God has never relinquished ever this earth or any part of his creation to the devil's control. What did Jesus come to do? He came to rescue and recover that which belongs to him. Hello? All right? Notice third, and this is much shorter so you can breathe. We saw the evidence, the second evidence of this awakening in Ephesus, a demonstration of God's power. But there's a third evidence or mark of revival or spiritual awakening that when you study revivals, you'll see a manifestation of the presence of God in an unusual way, not, not necessarily marked by sign gifts, but just a, a hunger after God among his people in prayer. You'll see that. You'll see this demonstration of power, and we'll talk more about this uh, when we see how it affects the community, where, where, where uh, there's, there's records of when revivals hit cities and towns and some of these historic revivals, bars closed, brothels went out of business, people who uh, did illegal things, they had dried up. Why? Why? How did that happen? It's because they came under the lordship of Christ. You want to change our nation? You want to change our culture? Be a great citizen. Vote. Use your best judgment and wisdom. But my friend, this world, this nation will never be changed at the ballot box It'll only be changed when hearts and lives are transformed by the gospel of Christ. Now, we need a good, healthy government that has the fear of God for us to continue to propagate the gospel. You with me? Hello? All right? The Sydney, it's just saying, look, we thought, we thought, you know, there's times that we voted people in and we thought, oh, the second coming must be within the next four years because we elected the guy, right? Let me tell you something. Get over that. The Bible is consistently clear on one thing about the latter days. They will continue to get worse and worse and worse. And false teaching and apostasy from within the church and a falling way will continue to happen. And so you want to see the lives, the, the culture transformed? It can only be transformed when the affections are changed. Hearts are changed. And so what happened? Verse 17, the third mark of the spiritual awakening we see in Ephesus is a magnification of the name of Jesus. You see, these demons and their ilk, they were trying to suppress the advancement of Jesus, weren't they? Isn't it amazing that everything they try to do to push their evil agenda, Romans 8.28 is always in effect, for God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Remember what Joseph said? He told his brothers, you meant it for evil, you bunch of scoundrels. He wouldn't let them off the hook. But God, but God, two great words in Scripture, but God 
Always, as Tony Evans says, is bigger than the bad. Bigger than the bad. And so what happened here is that, and this, see the word this there? You ought to circle this. What is, what is this? This is this that all took place in, above. And this became known. I'm not sure the seven sons of Sceva got a lot of appointments after this, but that's just my theory. And this became known to all, look at that, the residents of what? Ephesus, this third largest city in the Greco-Roman Empire, saturated in reputation of occultism. This all became known that, can I add this, that the Lord whooped the devils, and you put in whatever euphemism you want there, and great fear, what, fell upon them all, and I love this, and the name of the Lord Jesus, the ESV, like, extolled. I don't, you know, it's kind of an awkward word. New King James says, magnified. The NIV is helpful. NIV says, and the name of Jesus was held in high honor. What's the point? Is that the name of Jesus was magnified. The name of Jesus was lifted high. The, the thing that the enemy sought to destroy, he wasn't going to give up one inch of territory. You notice how the territory is claimed? There's a lot of goofy things that people who teach spiritual warfare have done. I've read about things where people have rented airplanes and flown over cities to cast out devils. You don't need to do any of that. You know what you need to do? You need to live for Jesus and tell people about the gospel. You don't need to rip planes and boats and Again, I'm getting off here, but just so much craziness that goes on here. And it's part because we do not quite grasp what Christ has accomplished. We took uh, communion today. You know what that is for the believer? That's the victory meal for the believer. And we get off on all these crazy things. Ed Murphy, and sometimes I mention books, hopefully things that are helpful to you, but he wrote a very helpful book called A Manual for Spiritual Warfare, Ed Murphy. And I like a lot of things on that subject. I wouldn't endorse everything in there, but it's very, very helpful, very good. Probably one of the most thorough books on spiritual warfare uh, that's been written. But I love this observation. I started to paraphrase it so you'd think I was really clever and came up with it. But I just couldn't do it. I had to give credit to where credit's due here. But listen to what he says about what's going on here in Acts 19. We've seen the empowerment uh, and the, and the, of the name of the, of, the, of the gospel and the magnification of the name of Jesus. Listen to what he says about this whole situation. He said, in the case of these Jewish exorcists, the demons reveal their stupidity. He says, they shoot themselves in the foot, to use a common saying. He said, if they had only shut their arrogant mouths and cooperated with their fellow demons, these ones trying, these demonized seven individuals trying to cast out their fellow demons to one-up the power, he said, if they had just cooperated with their fellow demons working through the sons of Sceva, they would have hurt the cause of the gospel in Ephesus. Instead, they became directly responsible for turning the spiritual warfare within the city towards the kingdom of God. This power encounter resulted in the most destructive defeat of the kingdom of Satan in the history of Ephesus. 
all instigated by stupid, evil spirits themselves. See, my mom told me, don't ever say stupid, but I figured if I quote it from somebody, it doesn't count. Let me give you four thoughts to wrap it up. Four thoughts. Kind of bring it together, because there's so much here. We can talk about the kingdom of God, spiritual warfare, all these things. Let me just kind of bring it four, four observations so we can move on. Number one, we must, as followers and believers, and I'm speaking to followers and believers in Christ, we must expect resistance and disruption from Satan. It's just the reality. The Bible teaches that. There will be pushback. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9 says, Be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful. You're what? Your enemy, your adversary. And he identifies them. The devil prowls around. Notice it says like. So be able to say, well, he's a roaring lion. No, 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 no. He's a fake. Talk about fake news. He's fake news, all right? He prowls around like imitating power when he has no power, like a roaring lion seeking someone, someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him. Really? I don't need to walk around the church 12 times and do all this. No, resist him. Whatever you're doing that you know are playing into his hands, stop it. There, I just killed your counseling ministry. Stop it. Quit doing it. Resist the devil. Jesus demonstrated a man full of the Spirit, full man, full God, don't get me wrong, but he was a man operating in the power of the Holy Spirit who completely, 100%, always, all time, 24-7, resisted the devil. I don't think any of us have ever experienced a life of total resistance. We fight sin. You know, Satan energizes disobedience. So resist him. Firm in your faith. Are you firm in your faith? Are you wobbly in what you think and what you believe? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, sisterhood throughout the world. In other words, this is part of being a follower of Jesus. Some people, it's more intense. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea, much more intense than us in Polk County. Secondly, we must remember that every follower of Jesus, and so much more we can say about this, has been given spiritual authority. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare. Remember Peter drew his sword when they came to arrest Jesus, and what did Jesus say? Now say Peter had a conceal and carry license. Um, that's a joke. Breathe, okay? Come on, people. Work with me. Jesus said, put it away. Why? For my kingdom is not of this world. And he didn't say it. And some people took that as saying, see, we shouldn't care anything about... No, he's saying it's origins. The origins of my kingdom are not of this world. You're not going to fight it through these kind of means. So the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh or carnal, King James says, but have divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. Ephesus was a stronghold. 
Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and do what? Take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do we do that? Jesus says, I give you, I, I, I give you authority. Matthew 28, that great commission, I give you authority to, to preach and make disciples. He's given us that authority. So much more we can say about that. Thirdly, we must never fear the enemy, always remembering that he has been defeated. I said the Lord's table is a victory meal, right? Colossians 2.15, look at this. If you're not marking these or referencing these, you're, you're, miss, you're doing yourself a disservice because these are, these are power verses that you need to have in your arsenal. Quick reference, Colossians 2.15, that Jesus at the cross, that's what Paul's talking about there in Colossians 1 and 2, that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. And right above that, he says, at the cross, he disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by what? The cross. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever, whoever makes a practice of sinning, doesn't mean you, when you sin, but you make a practice of sinning, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from when? From the beginning. When's the beginning? The beginning. Right? But look at this. The reason, the reason the Son of Man appeared, why did Jesus come, was to do what? What does it say? To destroy, to destroy the works of the devil. And the last, number four, belief. Belief in God's sovereignty does not mean that we are to be spiritually passive. This is a spiritual battle that we must fight. Think about the probably the most compact teaching on spiritual warfare in the New Testament in Scripture is found in what book? Where does it say put on the full armor of God? What book is that? The book of Ephesians. Who are the Ephesians? They are the church in Ephesus. And isn't it interesting that the place that Paul would write the most concentrated and full treatment against spiritual warfare would be where? In a place that was identified with such spiritual battle. It's here, with that in mind, writing to these former occultists, writing to these former soothsayers and, 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 and practitioners in the, the dark arts who, as we see towards the end of Acts 19, came and burned all their stuff. I don't know if they had Ouija boards, but they burned all that stuff. If you got a Ouija board, get rid of that garbage. Don't be playing around with that nonsense. That's free. But with that in mind, of what you know about Ephesus, listen to these words by Paul now in Ephesians 6, verse 10. He says, finally, my Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to do what? Stand against the schemes, the wiles, the strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against who? The rulers, against the authorities. Remember, again, he's not talking about your mother-in-law, your in-law, or the outlaw. He's not talking about any of those people. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly places. That means above the earth. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This morning as I was going over my notes again, I went over, and if you have your Bibles open, just flip over to the book of Revelation chapter 2. I just want you to see this because this is the church at Ephesus. And as I said earlier, not only was it a strategic megacenter for evil, but as a result of what takes place in chapter 19 by the power of God changing lives and the culture, we see Ephesus turned into a mega strategic center for the advancement of the gospel in that world. Churches planted, missions, all that coming out of Ephesus. And that's why it's listed first here in Revelation chapter 2. But notice this with all this in mind. Okay, I'm closing. I'm coming in for the landing. I've signaled the, the tower. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now this is years later. Lots of things have taken place. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Look at verse 2. He says, and it's not on, do I have it? No, I don't have it on the screen. Go ahead and take that off. And he says, verse 2 of Revelation 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Man, something must have happened in this place. So now, years later, they're being commended that they have created a bulwark in the church against evil and occultism. They are the church that has taken the stand. They are, they are vigilant against these things. He says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles. Yeah, there were phony apostles. And they're not. And you found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for many for my name's sake. And you have not grown worried. Do you see what's happened here? We're, we're just talking about the beginning. Okay? Fast forward when the Lord gives this to John and he's recording this word, these words. Ephesus is a, is, a, is, a, is a tremendous trophy of grace and the advancement of the gospel. They are a place in which they are standing firm against all this evil that their city has been known for. But he says, I got this one thing. I got this one thing against you. You've abandoned what? Your first love. And that should be a warning to us that we love truth we love the Word of God. We want to be doctrinally accurate. 
I don't want to be sloppy. I don't have any patience for the sloppiness that sometimes goes on. There's nothing wrong with being doctrinally clear. The Bible's clear about that. But if we lose focus on our first love, Jesus, we got a problem. Because Paul would write these words with that in mind. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, he says, I am nothing. We need both. Love truth. Be vigilant to stand for truth. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. When the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, they know what they believe. And it's low-hanging fruit among so-called Bible Christians because they don't even read their Bible, hardly. No truth. But love Jesus. Love Jesus. Jesus.